So Maddie did this beautiful picture. Um, and uh, if you know folks who are interested in Christianity, but struggle with doubt, struggle with these huge truths that Jesus claims about himself, that struggle with these huge claims the Bible makes about God. Basically, if, if you know people who are interested in Christ but are very doubtful, this is a really great series to invite them to. Um, because it, 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 I think it really, the, the Bible itself, and may I do an, an okay job with it, the Bible itself demonstrates its miraculous nature in this series in a way that I think is provoking and profound for folks, especially those who would like to believe in Christ but aren't sure they can intellectually, those who are struggling with doubt. Some of you guys in this room, like myself, are perennial doubters. You just doubt. You can't help it. It is the inflection of your mental temperament to question. And, and I hope through this study that will be really, really nourishing for you. Um, for, for wherever you are, regardless if you doubt God's truthfulness in his word, but you struggle to believe his promises for you personally, this is a, a good study to sink your teeth into because it declares that God's faithfulness in the past is a testimony to God's faithfulness in the future as you see how clearly he has been faithful. So I just, I just pray that this, these next few weeks for Christmas, this Advent series would, would be a blessing to you. I think especially young people um, who are um, Mateo and Logan and uh, Quinn and Cole and Sebastian and my daughter and my son, John and Marie, um, not to call you out, but I'm calling you out. You know, you're gonna head into a world where, um, where more and more and more it's gonna be increasingly difficult in a cultural way to be accepted for believing Christianity, unless God radically changes the directory of our culture. Um, and, and you're already experiencing that now. You know, it's, it's not like you have to wait till you get older. Um, and this series, I hope if, if by God's grace, I can do some justice to his word, I, I hope it will give you uh, a provoking realization that something supernatural Something supernatural is going on here that's worth giving your life to, that's worth holding on to. Um, so anyway, without further ado, I'm gonna jump right into, this is, this is the promised one, the first in our series. This one is called Declaring the End from the Beginning. Declaring the End from the Beginning. I'm gonna start with uh, a walkthrough of a specific section of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years or so before Jesus Christ took his first breath on earth. It is a book full of judgment and it is a book full of hope. Now, Isaiah prophesied after over a thousand years had passed in the life of the Hebrew people. From the time the Lord first gave his promise to Abraham in about 1850 BC, almost 2,000 years before Christ, to make of Abraham a great nation and through his seed to bless all the families of the earth through that offspring, through after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And I'm walking you through what happened before Isaiah, okay? He had Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And then the, the Hebrew people spent 400 years enslaved or in Egypt and part of that was enslaved in Egypt. And then comes Moses around 1400 BC and freedom from slavery as Moses leads them out 
1446 BC. And then this long and difficult journey to establish the land of Israel around 1000 AD, Saul and then David take the throne and establish the nation in a monarchy that's followed by Solomon. And then soon after Solomon's death, the nation splits into two kingdoms. They have a civil dispute and they split into two kingdoms, north and south. So it's in this season of a divided Israel in the 700s BC that Isaiah writes. Things are not getting better for either kingdom in terms of their relationship with God. They're going from bad to worse. The land of both kingdoms is full of idolatry. It's full of sin. It's full of violence. It's full of murder, lying, corruption, religious hypocrisy. Isaiah warns in his prophecies that the northern kingdom is very soon going to be judged for their sins. They will be taken captive by Assyria, he predicts. And they will be no more. The southern kingdom, Isaiah warns, is on God's judgment radar and their judgment is coming soon unless they repent. And they won't repent. And Isaiah predicts the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem because they won't repent. He makes that prediction. Isaiah is full of predictions. It's full of warnings. But it's also full of hope. Promises. God promises that one day he will rescue his people from all of the destruction that they are reaping because of their sin. He will rescue the southern kingdom from even her immediately coming captivity to Judah. He tells them you're going to be taken captive and he tells them and I will bring you back to the land after that captivity. The southern kingdom will last even though the northern kingdom will not. Isaiah is, is, is bigger though than just these two kingdoms and the prediction God makes about them. Isaiah prophesies a day when the Lord will bring a Messiah to Israel, to Judah, whose salvation will reach past Judah and Israel to the very ends of the earth. We can think of that famous passage in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will rule the entire world with justice and righteousness. So Isaiah is full of prediction. It's full of predictions. It's full of warnings of judgment to come. It's full of promises of hope to come. It's full of the future. And, and as God makes these promises <clears throat> about the future, as God gives these warnings about the future in Isaiah throughout the whole book, he interweaves it. He stops along the way again and again to make sure that we understand exactly what he's doing and exactly who he is. And he, in a sense, in a respectful way, is saying, test me. Test me. Discern whether or not I am the God who does what he says. Listen to Isaiah 41. He's confronting the worship of the false gods. He's confronting idolatry in Israel. But listen to what he says. 
Here's how he does it. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. And he's speaking to the idolaters and, the, and their false gods. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are or what they were, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. And a few verses later, the Lord boasts in himself, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it and none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then more prophecies, more predictions. And then he says it again. Declare your present case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Now again, the context is, and I'm not reading all the prophecies, he's telling them about judgments to come. He's telling them about promises of restoration to come. He's telling them about the Messiah to come. And then he'll stop and he'll say, listen, listen to what I'm doing. I'm telling you the future. Test me. And he says this, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together, speaking to the idols of the land and the idolaters. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. The Lord is declaring something very powerful about himself. He's declaring that he is in control of all history and all future. He's declaring that he knows what will happen and will bring it to pass. And he is telling the people, test me on it. Watch me. See if this is true or not. Figure out whether I am God or not. Remember this. Next slide. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not done. I am God and there is none like me. Why is there none like you? How is there none like you? Because he is the God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. What the Lord is saying again and again through all these predictions and promises of the future, of destruction, of restoration, of Messiah, of ultimate world conquest of his glory over all that opposes him. What he is saying again and again is here's how you can know that I am God. I am telling you ahead of time what is going to happen and then I will bring it to pass and no one will stop me.
when Jesus Christ walked the earth 700 years after these words were written. He often said, or those writing about him often said things like this. This happened about his life. Something happened in his life. Something he did, something that was done to him. This happened in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. One slide later. This is the phrase you'll see again and again repeated through the gospels. Something like this. It won't be verbatim like this every time. It'll say in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's all over Matthew. It's all over John. It's in Luke and Mark. Less so, but it's all over. This happened in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Brothers and sisters, seekers and doubters, God wanted you to know that he is real. He wanted you to know with as much certainty that's available to you in your biochemical temperament, he wanted you to know that he is God because your eternity depends on it. Your hope depends on it. Your spiritual flourishing depends on it. He wanted you to know and be certain that he is the Lord, that he is God, that there is only one in the universe. You know, there's such a pervasive sense in our culture that the idea of God is just this eternally unknowable idea. It's so politely bantered, the idea of God, or it's militantly opposed, the idea of God. But, but it's just acceptable in our culture. To, 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 I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about our culture. Movies and restaurants and classrooms and people you'll see. The best we can hope for is that people are like, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't. Let live, you know, live and let live on it. I mean, it's just so hard to know. We can't see him with our eyes. We can't touch him with our hands. Who knows? Who knows? Hope he's there. Wouldn't it be great? Like that's the best we can hope for in the culture. God's not like that at all in the Bible. He's not like that at all. He's not like that at all. He is not apologizing at all. He doesn't act like he didn't give us enough information. He acts just the opposite. When Jesus came to earth, he acted like everybody should have known. Everybody should have known he was coming. He doesn't, he doesn't accept the fact that people don't believe in him. And, and, the re, and the way he engages that so often is, I told you. The scriptures said this was going to happen just like this. Weren't you paying attention? Don't you know? The whole reason why you were delivered from Egypt, the whole reason why you conquered the land, the whole reason why I built this nation was so that there could be promises studied and worshiped about. I mean, the God who made these promises worshiped so that you could marinate and reflect for centuries and whole families could rehearse these promises so that when I came, you'd know. 
That's how he acts in the gospels. He's not like content with doubt. I mean, we want to be merciful and kind. Absolutely. I struggle with doubt all the time. But I don't think Jesus is like, oh, no problem, Albert. I don't think he's ever like that with my doubt. I think he's like, I love you. I will help you. But why do you doubt? I think that's what he's like. Just like with Peter falling through the waves. Because Jesus' whole life was choreographed ahead of time hundreds and thousands of years ahead of time. In Matthew 1:22, Jesus' virgin birth is recorded. Then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 7, the virgin will be worth child. In Matthew 4, Jesus' family settles in Capernaum. Finally, Matthew writes, leaving Nazareth, they went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region of the sh- and the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. Hello, go to Isaiah 9. And it goes on, Isaiah 9. A child is born, a son is given. 700 years before. This is where Jesus' family is going to settle down. 700 years before. This is where he's going to settle down. And when Jesus is an adult, this is how he begins his public ministry in his own hometown, Nazareth at that point. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written 700 years earlier. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the Lord's favor. It's me, it's me, it's me. He told you, he told you, he told you. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were all fixed on him. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? You kept inflecting me. Like, you didn't just read it, but like, when you said me, did you mean something in your voice when you heard you say me? And he began to say to them, today, in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And there was never a bigger mic drop in the nation of Israel than there was that day. Absolutely chilling. (laughs) Who knows what it really looked like? I don't know if his inflections were there, but at that point, here I am. 700 years you've been waiting for the Messiah. Well, even longer than that, if you know your Bible's better, here I am. I love this show, Jesus of Nazareth. When I was a kid growing up, that was the Jesus on TV that I knew. So he was always, you know, you know, he's not like, happy Jesus. I don't know. You know, I I wasn't there. This chosen, the the passion of Christ. I I don't know like what Jesus was like. And I think it can be tricky to get too embedded in these caricatures because they're extra biblical. Not necessarily unbiblical. Some of them can be. But there's this one scene in Jesus of Nazareth that I just feel like is one of my greatest cinematic moments of all time. Anybody familiar with this? He, he gets up in the synagogue, this, this uh, actor, whoever played him, Powell, somebody, and he just takes his robe off, reads Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And then he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And he sits down and everybody is just like, 
what in the world? I mean, could you imagine if, if, if I did something crazy like that, like read the Revelation part about the two prophets in Revelation coming, still to come, and this prediction in Revelation about these two prophets who will prophesy for several days and be killed and resurrected. If I read that and I was like, and brothers and sisters, I am one of the two prophets. You know, you'd, everybody head for the door and good for you. But Jesus, he's just, this is it. This is it, folks. I'm here. It's time. It's time. In Matthew 8, in the midst of his healing ministry, it says this, that, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Who would do that, Isaiah says. Well, the Messiah is going to do that. What's Jesus doing? He's doing that. He's born of a virgin. He's born in Bethlehem, Mike will tell us. He's, he's healing. He's giving, eyes to the, he's giving eyes to the blind. Who would do that? The Messiah, Isaiah says. When, Matthew's arrest, when Jesus is arrested much later in his ministry, we'll skip over many of these that are in Matthew and these other books. Jesus is arrested at the end of his ministry on earth. At that hour, Jesus says to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Even in his worst moments, I'm just doing what was predicted of me. I'm just doing, remember what Isaiah said as he's being arrested. Hey guys, remember, Isaiah told us, remember I told you that I'm the Messiah and I'm doing what he would do? Here I am. He's hanging on the cross, John 19, 14. The soldiers take his clothing and they gamble for his garments. They say to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. John says, this was to fill the scriptures which say, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that's David in Psalm 22, who, who speaks of the crucifixion. Go home and read Psalm 22. David writes of the crucifixion physiologically and forensically as if he had been crucified himself. His heart melts within him. His bones are out of joint. It's, it's incredible what he says emotionally about what he's going through in that Psalm and how it, it, it perfectly matches the crucifixion. They've pierced my hands and my feet. None of that stuff happened to David. Crucifixion wasn't even around when David wrote Psalm 22. He wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. He's writing about Jesus. A thousand years earlier. A thousand years. I was reading some of this stuff to my kids this week. We were reading some of Isaiah 53. I said, John, what would it be like if someone wrote in detail and in precision about you in the year 1321? What would it be like if someone, Rob, Kelly, if someone wrote about your whole life, where you'd be born, where'd you grow up, what you'd go through, your hardest triumphs, your, your greatest hopes, your, you know, 1321. When you'd be born. Where you'd be born. 1321. Jesus expected us. Jesus expected the Jews to be ready for him. And he expects us to search these scriptures, to know these scriptures so that our faith is more solid. Our faith is more assured. After his resurrection, 
Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday, he meets two disciples who are discouraged and forlorn. Jesus hides his identity from them supernaturally. Maybe he had a cloak over his head, but in a few minutes he'll disappear completely. So I I tend to think it was probably supernatural. But he hides his identity from them and they're walking along the beach and he, he asks them, who are you talking about? And they say, we're talking about Jesus. He's like, what about this Jesus? Like, where in the world have you been? They say to him, essentially, have you not, don't you know? What are you asking? Because Jesus is the story in the whole city. And they tell him about Jesus. A man who was a prophet. Mighty. In deeds and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem us, but they crucified him. We were really hoping he was the Messiah. But my goodness, they pierced his hands and his feet. They scourged him. He was delivered over to death by the oppressors. And he was buried with a rich man in his grave. I mean, they could just quote Isaiah. Oh, this is what happened to him. We thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. And lovingly, he says to all of us, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. This is what he says to me in my doubt. In love and in mercy, oh, foolish Albert, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses, which means Genesis 1, (laughs) because Moses wrote Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. (sighs) He preached to them. For a long time, longer than I'm going to preach to you today. And it was a much better message. Jesus expected his people to know. And he's merciful with their doubt. He's merciful with our doubt. But he wants you to know. He wants you to be assured and encouraged. I don't want to make this about your doubt. I want to make this morning about where your hope can be, where it can grow. In John 5, he rebukes religious leaders who could not see what was staring them right in the face. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' entire life 
was fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment of specific and precise prophecies made through the Holy Spirit. Where he would be born, Micah 5, his virgin birth, Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, his flight into Egypt as a child, Hosea 11.1, 1, his astounding miracles, Isaiah 61 and many others, his healings, Isaiah 53 and others, his unsurpassable teaching, Isaiah 11.12, his nature as both the son of God and a human like us, Isaiah 9, Psalm 2, other Psalms. I mean, the Bible, the Old Testament that attested on penalty of death that there is only one God attests throughout that same scripture that there is a Lord who also has a Lord. (laughs) That there is one who is both a son given to us and is also eternal God. The Bible attests to Jesus' unique role as both king and priest in Psalm 110. The Bible gives us the exact timing of his revelation to Israel as their Messiah 500 years before it takes place in Daniel 9. His presentation on a humble donkey in Zechariah 9. His being mocked and crucified, Psalm 22. We already alluded to that. His role as our sin bearer, Isaiah 53, uh, Zechariah Zechariah 12, I believe. His, His resurrection on the third day, Hosea 6, on the third day. His new covenant, the new covenant that he would enact, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 46, his ascending to the Father's right hand until he comes again, Psalm 110, his gospel going to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, and many, many other places. There's so many more I could list. All these prophecies were made centuries, and in some cases, thousands of years before Jesus ever took a breath on earth. And that's why he said to his disciples, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So what's this mean for us? What's it mean for you? My hope this morning is that wherever we are, wherever I am, wherever you are, as you listen, you would be provoked to believe more than when you ever walked, than you did when you walked in and that you'd be provoked to, to sink your teeth into these passages to nourish and strengthen your hope for your future. So if you're doubting, if you're struggling with belief in God at a fundamental level, I just want to exhort you, be like Thomas. Put your hand into his side, so to speak, by probing these prophecies as we go along and honestly ask, how could Jesus not be, I mean, honestly ask it. How could all these prophecies about Jesus come to pass How could all these scriptures be so perfectly made sense of by his person and his mission? I mean, you might have answers like, oh, they they wrote it in the Bible afterward, you know? Like, and and you'd be wrong. And I can explain to you why that would be absolutely wrong. Why one of the most amazing things about the Old Testament is that the Jewish people believe it and don't believe in Jesus. Like, it's their whole, it's their whole Bible And they say, this is our Bible. This has been our Bible for 4,000 years. And we don't believe in Jesus, but it's filled with Jesus. Christians didn't go back in time and write these things in. But but yeah, ask the questions. You know, I alluded to it earlier. We are awash right now In, in a celebrity, so to speak, a in, in, in the idea of this kind of celebrity deconstructionism, you know, 
every couple of months we hear about some Christian that we sung his songs or followed his books and suddenly saying, I don't believe anymore. You know, it, it feels like that, right? It may not be that big. People are talking about, is this the great falling away? Is this the beginning of the falling away that the Bible predicts before the second coming? I don't know. I don't know. But that kind of stuff is really, can be really unsettling. It can be really intimidating, can it? And it's not just incidents that are happening out there. It's part of the spirit of the air that's in our culture right now. There's a spirit of unbelief that's pronounced right now. And I can feel it creeping in. This is a great remedy for battling that fear and that unbelief. I mean, I'll tell you what, in the last several months, I have gone back to Isaiah 53 and said to my soul, this is true. Because 700 years before Isaiah saw it perfectly, this is true. I'm holding on. I'm not giving up. Because doubt is coming in a a stronger way for many of us than it has in a long time. So I want to appeal to us. Peter says it this way. He says that through Jesus... He says the prophetic word has been made more certain. And then he says, you do well. You do well to pay attention to it like a lamp shining in a dark place. All of us, but especially you young people whose faith is still being formed. Sebastian. Christian. Logan, Cole, sleeping Cole, wake up, brother. I love you. All right, good. I'm sorry I called you out. That was super rude. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I, I, just, I just feel so, Cole, you're also an awesome kid. I love you. So I, I'm sorry I did that. that was, I was just joking. Sometimes I get too flippant. But, I, but I, you, you have a real mind. You're grappling with the things that I'm talking about today. And... Uh, Marie and John, I mean, I I just, I'm sorry to to get specific. I just am so burdened for you guys. Like, it is a struggle to believe. It is a fight. I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for 30 some years now. It's a struggle for me to keep hoping, to keep holding on. And I think for anyone who wants to have a serious faith, it's going to be a struggle. Guys, there is absolute solid rock help for you to be a Christian and not give up. And it's here. And we're going to be talking about it a lot. God didn't just give these prophecies for those disciples on the beach. He gave them to you to have a light that shines in a very dark place. And guys, it is a very dark place. I know it. And whether it's trial it's a dark place. Or whether it's abundant blessing, it's a dark place. Either, one's, either one, trial or blessing, are seeking to pull us out, you know? The ditch on the left, the ditch on the right. Political extremism, wealth, poverty. I mean, <laughs> we are just not home yet. And, and God has given these prophecies to us to be a lamp to us in a dark place. Parents, Raise your kids on these promises. Give them evidence. Give them proof. God has said, I'm, he, that's what we, why we went through Isaiah in the whole beginning. He's saying, I'm giving you proof. 
Who is like me? Who predicts the end from the beginning and brings it to pass? He, prove it. Prove that you're a God by saying what's to come and bring it to pass, he says. So we, we have that opportunity now with our kids to say, look, there's no God like this. He did it. He did it. If you're not doubting, but you're just feeling hopeless this morning, if you're just feeling hopeless, let God's fulfilled promises remind you and convince you of his absolute guarantee to keep the promises that he's made to you personally in his word through Jesus. What I mean is if he's been so faithful in the past and so unafraid to be very specific and very solid to do exactly what he says with his son in human history, he's going to keep his very specific promises to you. He promises justification. That means a righteous standing as a gift to you if you will receive it by faith. If you will, if you will agree with him about your sin and be honest with him about your sin and put your hope in him in light of your sin, he promises free forgiveness and will never let you go. He promises that. He promises grace every day to meet the need every day. Every day you will have struggles and problems and challenges that will be hard for you if you're going to try to follow Christ. He promises grace and mercy to meet everyone at the asking for it every day if you will believe him for it. If you will believe him for it. He promises renewed forgiving and cleansing whenever you blow it, whenever you fail in big ways and short, he promises to keep forgiving you when you're honest with him about your sin and confess. He promises wisdom when you're in a trial and you don't know what to do if you will believe him for it. He promises it to you. He promises to meet your needs. He knows you need water and food and clothing and shelter. He promises as long as he has you on this earth to care for those needs. Even if, even, if, even if you're not perfect in your obedience, which you never will be, he's perfect in his faithfulness. If you're discouraged about the world, if you're just discouraged, abortion, another school shooting is just horrible, horrible political corruption and extremism and blaming and hating and fighting just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse in our country. I feel, I feel that. Just be honest, I'm, I couldn't vote for either of those last two guys. I couldn't vote for the guy we have now. I couldn't, couldn't vote for the guy. And I'm not saying that's where you are. I'm just saying I feel that. A, a political orphan. fill in the blank for you, you know? You just feel like this country is just, and the world is getting darker and darker and darker. Well, Jesus told us that he was coming the first time to be our sin bearer. And he was so specific. The Lord was so precise about how and when and why and what. And he's told us that he's coming again. That he will not let rebellion and oppression, idolatry and selfishness and cruelty and sin have the final day. He will cleanse his people fully. He will judge the world in righteousness. He is giving people time to repent now. He's not waiting because he's, 
watching NFL and eating Cheetos. He is not waiting for anything else but to give people more time to turn to him so that he can bring more people into his kingdom when he does come and judge less people than he might if he hadn't. It may feel like it is taking a long time. I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. You guys know, everybody sang me birthday song in there and a bunch of you guys gave me some really sweet gifts and I need to um, thank you guys for that and I'll be busy writing some notes for a while. But I, I realized when I turned 50, you know, if you take my life, just 40 lifetimes back to Jesus. It's not that long. I mean, my life has felt like that to me. Just take, 50, take 40 of those. And I'm, I'm back to when Jesus was a little boy. It's not a long time. He's coming back. He's going to set things right. I, I think, I won't get into this too deeply. I think there are real indicators that he is continuing to fulfill world history exactly as he said he would. And, and before we leave the series, we might get into some of that, the predictions that he's made about the future that, that he has brought to pass since he's come and that he is continuing to bring to pass. But he's going to be faithful to do again what he did before, which is to come to this earth to bring his will to bear on it. Lastly, if, if maybe you're just indifferent to Jesus, I, <clears throat> I don't... I don't assume anybody in this room is indifferent to Jesus, but certainly some of you guys know people who are indifferent to Jesus. Especially people who grew up in churches and walked away or just never really taken it seriously. Jesus said something really sobering that, that I think speaks to these prophetic witnesses that we're hearing about today. He said, to whom much is given, much will be required. He said, he who knew his master's will but did not do it will, be, will receive many lashes. <laughs> he who did not know his master's will and did not do it will, refuse, will receive few lashes. The point is, God has given us a lot in this book. He's given us a lot. He has given us ample proof of his existence, powerful reason for acknowledging what he says when he declares, I am God, there is no other declaring the end from the beginning. And if he promises not only salvation for those who put their trust in him, but everlasting judgment for those who ignore him, then to those we know and love that are, that are like that, or if, if any of you are feeling tempted to be that, we have reason to be concerned. And I, I just would appeal to you to consider That, that you might pray that the Lord would have you understand these prophecies well so that you might be able to bring them into a conversation with someone who's really indifferent about Jesus. Because God's going to hold us accountable for what we do with these promises he's given us. To receive them and hope in them or to ignore them. <clears throat> 